confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Bob Mackin, journalist and publisher of TheBreaker.News, joining me for the first time from Vancouver. Bob, what took us so long? Welcome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We're, we're, we're both busy people and uh, a lot of news happening all the time. Uh, glad to finally be here. I have such belief in the model that you are doing out in Vancouver, these kind of like small one person or two people shops. There's one in Halifax, there's one in Hamilton. I think this model could work. Uh, glad to finally have you here on the show. And Bob, today we're going to talk about paid youth protesters in Vancouver. They actually exist outside of conspiracy theories. And the suddenly red-hot market for stories that make Vancouver Island somehow seem interesting. You will have no face left when we're done. Glad to have you here for it. Thank you. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Philip Kahn, Haley Alcock, Clifton Mark, Pamela Steele, Amanda Bendel, Jeff Sobel, Rachel Bonang, and Barry. I'm a web dev from rural Ontario. I support Canada Land because I grew up listening to Jesse Brown in his search engine days. He helped show me that technology is political and how its use is as important as who's making it. With Canada Land, he's surrounded himself with strong and diverse voices, and I'm learning new things constantly. Keep up the good work, y'all. Bob, uh, I know you've been covering the story from the ground, but let's actually begin with a report from uh, a different outfit than yours. This is uh, CBC's Front Burner podcast covering these youth protests at the Meng Wanzhou trial in Vancouver. All right. So before we go today, I want to bring your attention to sort of an odd scene outside the courthouse in Vancouver today. A handful of young people all holding homemade and near identical red and white signs that said stuff like, bring Michael home, Trump stopped bullying us, and free Ms. Mung, equal justice. The group was untypically mum for protesters with a message. They didn't want to answer questions about what group they were from. We're not allowed to talk, so we're not, our group doesn't want, doesn't want to talk. Whether they were familiar with the issues. We just want equal justice. Equal justice, how, how's equal justice? Are you aware of the extradition treaty? A reporter on the scene was curious if they had been paid to be there, and most of them kept quiet. Are you paid to be here? Though one young man said that he wasn't. 
Bob, you are an intrepid reporter who was there on the scene. Were you able to figure out who this mysterious unnamed reporter was that the CBC referred to there? <laughs> yeah, that, that was me. That was me. I came along on Monday morning on the way to the courthouse. I was actually running a little bit late. There was a lineup forming already inside to get into courtroom 20, the law courts, the biggest, most secure room in the law courts. It holds about 149 people in the gallery. I eventually did get in, but uh, had to get in line. So I was running a little bit late to get in, to get my space in line before the 10 a.m. start. And uh, I noticed uh, from about a block away, uh, a crowd that was forming, small crowd, that seemed to be holding up uh, placards. And as I got closer, got uh, curious, turned on my camera phone and started asking those questions and didn't get any any real answers from any of them. And a couple of them actually uh, decided just to walk away entirely, asked a few questions about uh, knowledge of the, the, the case and the facts. Equal justice, how, how's equal justice? Are you aware of the extradition treaty? I'm not aware. You're not aware of the extradition treaty or the facts of the case? No, I'm not. Sorry. You're not, but... Who, who, protesting equal rights for uh, my man, Mr. So, so who, uh, what group are you with? Pardon? What, what's the name of your group? This is my group. Didn't get any answer from one fella, and uh, one woman was uh, resisting, telling me I had no right to ask questions. What school do you go to? I don't I go think to you're school. allowed to ask us personal questions like that. I'm a reporter. I ask personal questions. We're not liable to answer Okay, so are you with a political party? Told her that uh, while I'm a reporter, I ask personal questions. That's what I do. One of them did say uh, reluctantly after holding a silence for quite a while that uh, he wasn't paid. And as it turns out, I wasn't able to contact him. But uh, one one of my uh, colleagues I sometimes collaborate with, uh, Ina Mitchell, she's working on a documentary here in Vancouver. She did an interview with uh, one of them who said that he was tricked to go there. And he thought he was uh, being hired to work a couple of hours on a music video shoot and was going to get paid a hundred bucks. Another one I did an interview with yesterday, uh, Julia Hackstaff. She's a local actress. She was the one that actually walked away. If you look at the Twitter video that I posted, uh, and she explained why she walked away in her interview with me, that uh, she was under the impression that she had been hired for a couple of hours to be an extra, uh, but never foresaw had no hint whatsoever that uh, she was going to be placed in front of the law courts to hold protest placards for something that she didn't really know about at all. She uh, would never have gone there, she said, if she knew it was going to be a political protest of any sort. And uh, yeah, these signs were all made by what appears to be the same person. You could tell the the handwriting. They all said, uh, free Ms. Mung, bring Michael home, Trump stop bullying us, equal justice which is kind of interesting. It said Michael in the singular. Uh, there's two yeah. Michaels, of course, that Canadians right. want brought home. Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig grew in jail in China as retaliation for Canada holding uh, Meng Wanzhou, who's wanted in the United States to be tried on fraud charges. Those signs called her Ms. Meng, and it referred to Trump just as Trump, not as President Trump. But uh, the, the Ms. Meng part was interesting, too, because uh, really the... English media, unless, of course, it's uh, a Globe Mail style or a Wall Street Journal style, doesn't refer to her as Ms. Meng, just refers to her as Meng, Meng Wanzhou. There is some suggestion on Chinese social media and some Chinese media reports that uh, CCTV, the state broadcaster from China, which is covering these hearings, may have had a role in it. CCTV certainly did use these protesters as a backdrop for some of their reports on Monday morning. Whoever did this, whoever was organizing this, is still 
still a bit of a mystery. Um, when I talked to Julia Hackstaff, uh, the actress who was protesting and who left, and she never did get paid. She left without getting paid because she didn't like what was going on. She described to me a multi-layered level of producers who were uh, enlisting people to enlist other people to enlist other people to be involved in this. Uh, and so I'm trying to work my way up the ladder to find out uh, who really was responsible for this. Wow. I mean, that was a very detailed description of, this, of the story that I, I think you broke. And, and now I've seen every news organization pick it up. And I don't think one of them has mentioned your name or credited your news organization, even as they use your, your video footage. And, and, and we heard your voice. Yeah, um, CTV Vancouver did, which is good. Oh, good for them. Yeah. I just want to say, though, that that the one thing that doesn't come across in your retelling of it, and I think you did a fine job of retelling it, is just how funny the video that you shot is. I mean, it doesn't come across in the audio. You kind of have to watch it to see this kind of like just like baffled gaggle of, uh, I think it seems like a group of young white kids, all with identical red Bristol board, all with the same handwriting on it. Like it just doesn't look right, even from a distance before you even get into all those details like of free Michael. Well, which Michael? And then their responses when you just start asking them questions like, so, you know, what, what, what are you doing here? Why do you care about this? And they just look like they want to die and curl up into a ball. Some of them get defensive. I don't have to answer your questions, which is a strange thing. You would think that if you're protesting, you want attention. That's what you're there for. But not to like blame these kids because like from their accounts, they were roped into this with promise to be in a music video, as you say. Here's the star's uh, headline. What am I protesting? What am I doing here? How one young woman says she got roped into it. Another one said that uh, they thought that they were like part of a video shoot and only when they realized that you were asking them questions and nobody had yelled action. Maybe that's when they realized that mm -hmm. something was wrong with this. And you also point out, and you know, it's not that everyone just took your story. Some people... um did, I think, find some details out that were new to me. Anyhow, Globe and Mail, you know, to pick up on what you were saying, they reported that, yes, indeed, China Central Television, the main state uh, TV broadcaster in China, they used footage of these protesters and they told the, the narrator's voice in Mandarin said, locals gathered outside the courthouse calling for the release of Meng Wanzhou. So I think it's, you know, your job is clear to find out who put them up to this, who was paying for it. And other people are speculating, I think, with a lot of uh, reason to believe that this was the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP itself, maybe through a, like a chain of intermediaries that made this happen. What's interesting to me is like this is theater. And who is this theater for? Because it wasn't going to fool anyone in Canada. But I wonder if when you are getting this broadcast, if you live uh, on mainland China and you're flashed an image of young Western protesters and told, yeah, even the locals there, there's this sort of anti-Trump, pro-Meng, you know, protest movement. Um, you know, maybe that's enough, or maybe you're just so used to being propagandized to by the state government that it's just kind of like, just effectively neutralizes the story. And okay, there's two sides to this, but it's interesting that our youth are being enlisted through duplicity to perform as protesters and not for our benefit. It's not, they're not trying to trick us. Indeed. Uh, it did trick some Western media outlets too, because uh, those images, of course, we can't uh, film inside the courtroom. There was actually a media consortium application to make that happen, to broadcast or webcast these proceedings, even just to put a, a single camera in the corner and have a microphone. And uh, the judge in these proceedings, uh, Associate Chief Justice of the BC Supreme Court, Heather Holmes, she rejected that because uh, the... Uh, Meng Wanzhou defense team, as well as the lawyers for the government of Canada, both had concerns. There were concerns about whether if she does get extradited to the U.S., she 
would have a fair trial if this was webcast before, if that would pollute the jury pool. That was one of the arguments that the judge bought. So uh, we do have a mechanism in British Columbia courts to allow webcasting or broadcasting if a judge approves. And in this case, uh, it was a surprise of a lot of people that she didn't. So there's that visual element that the media cannot use inside the courtroom. So visuals outside the courthouse uh, suddenly become more valuable to uh, TV outlets wanting to, uh, to fill time uh, and to, to get some, some color. So that's another oddity of this. It was as if they were serving double purpose, that they were also there to be a, a bit of a morale booster for, for Mung to show that there are people supporting her, especially uh, now that some, some people are also protesting outside her very expensive mansion in the Shaughnessy part of Vancouver. Suddenly there were these protesters who were not only trying to uh, change the minds of Canadians and, and Chinese and maybe Americans through the media, but uh, they were also there to perhaps give her a, a bit of a boost. And uh, some media outlets uh, have got a denial from Huawei that Huawei was involved in this at all. Uh, so Huawei says they, they weren't, they don't didn't know anything about this. So it's it's still a mystery and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully... Uh, find the, uh, the the clues that uh, bring us the uh, solution. Mm -hmm. This all seems to dovetail one way or another, directly or indirectly, into uh, what's called the United Front Work Department, which is an, an actual arm of the Chinese Communist Party, and its job is to do this around the world, to try to influence other cities, provinces, countries, states around the world to try to influence those governments to... Uh, not look at uh, China's blemishes and human rights to basically allow China to dictate what it wants and find what it wants in the world, as well to control the populations of the diaspora. It's fascinating stuff. And it's, you know, there's no shortage of media attention on the trial itself. But the part of it that you have been specifically focused on, which is how it's playing out in terms of these these youth protesters, I know that there is, I guess, legitimate I suppose, grassroots support amongst, like, if you're looking for a youth movement that is Beijing sympathetic, that is uh, in favor of uh, releasing Hmong, that is pro-Huawei, there are young students in Canada who genuinely feel that way. And I think that they tend to be overwhelmingly Chinese Canadians or people who are Chinese and living in Canada uh, from the mainland. Those people exist, but that's not who we saw at this protest. You know, on, on whose behalf are they operating um, in addition to their own? I mean, this is why we had our um, producer, Tiffany Lamb, look at the same thing. But I think it is going underlooked by the media. You know, one thing I take from this, uh, Bob, is that a little bit of solace, I take a little bit of comfort in this story because there's so many different stories where people are accused of being paid protesters, especially when it comes to environmentalism or things like that. There's all kinds of people saying that George Soros paid people to do this or that, the other thing, and then the whole crisis actor narrative, the whole Alex Jones uh, thing. And here we have, like, you know, on the one hand, proof that there is political theater like that, actors, literal actors paid to be players in a political drama. But as political theater, this is like waiting for government. Like, this is some low-budget, like, you know, everything from the lighting to the, uh, to the mise-en-scene, I guess that's a cinema term. Like, it's just like, you can't convince me that this is real. Like, I think I think it, it popped to you as something fishy right from the start. And um, it took the just like the slightest bit of journalistic poking for the whole thing to fall apart. So, you know, if nothing else, we'll keep our eye on this. And I think it's worth finding out who put them up to it if you can. But it's nice to know how hard it is to actually stage a political action like this.
This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, a canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Bob, I want to introduce you to a feature on our show you may not be familiar with. It is called Duly Noted. It is where we note duly news stories that need to be duly noted. Have you brought something for us? Yeah, there's uh, you know, the ongoing the ongoing battle for access to information and privacy in Canada. You know, some news stories here and there have popped up. Why I thought of this would be a, a good one to talk about because, as you've covered quite often, this whole government bailout, the $600 million media bailout. And I was wondering years ago when this all started, when Hetty Fry, the, the Liberal Member of Parliament from the West Coast, started a committee to look at this, I was asking questions of why don't we push government to just make it easier, first of all, before we even start going down the road of any any subsidies or help whatsoever, to get government to save some money on communications and save some money on the Access to Information Department. We've got a whole bureaucracy whose job it is to push out the government's message for the political gain of the party in power. Uh, this happens not only federally, but every province and some major cities too. A lot of money is spent on public relations, uh, and a lot of money is spent also to keep the message away from the public. Uh, large departments that uh, are in charge of uh, access to information and they take FOI requests, you know, those departments sometimes are married to the communications departments. And you could save a lot of money if you had fewer people pushing out PR messages to glorify the politicians and their parties and their policies. You could save a lot of money as well if you just proactively released the information that the public wants on a regular basis and make it easier for reporters to access that information, make it easier for reporters to talk to the uh, politicians, uh, the, the, the cabinet ministers, for instance, as well as the deputy ministers. You know, whenever I hear uh, government, uh, especially the federal government, talk about uh, how much they care about media and they want to help media and they interfere with the bailout and all sorts of other things, I think, why don't you just fix the freedom of information process? Anyway, duly noted. I have one uh, that is uh, incredibly trivial by comparison to yours. I want to duly note the donut class wars. Bob, I'm sure you uh, are aware of this massive Canadian story. Justin Trudeau bought fancy donuts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And people are very mad. I think more people were mad, actually, at the news coverage of this, the fact that there was news coverage of it, than they were at Trudeau for showing what a posh bourgeois elite he is by buying fancy hipster donuts at uh, almost $4 a pop, as opposed to going to good old-fashioned Tim Hortons. A lot of people on Twitter were really put out a joint that the media would waste resources on this. Fair enough. And uh, even the angle people were angry about. Like, like Tim Hortons is not more Canadian they were saying, than some local donut shop. Tim Hortons is owned by a Brazilian conglomerate. And, you know, I just want to say a couple of things about this. 
And the first is that, like, I am loath to admit it, but I have to recognize that Tim Hortons is a Canadian institution. And the reason for that has nothing to do with whether its ownership is domestic or foreign. The reason for that is because we are cheap. Canadians are cheap. And Tim Hortons is like the cheapest you can get food and still call it food. And it is a weirdly unique Canadian thing that it is what it is, that at an airport, there is a lineup for this this atrocious product. And that's because everywhere else on the, in the airport, they're gouging you, but you can still get your like dog food chili for like a buck or two at Tim Hortons. And there is a class dynamic to eating a $4 donut. God damn it. So, yeah, most Canadians are much more familiar with the Tim Hortons. And when they see Justin Trudeau buying those other donuts, I'll say this, too. There is a news story here. What the fuck was he thinking buying a $4 donut in Winnipeg? In Winnipeg. Winnipeg is home to the thriftiest Canadians. I said it's in my DNA. I speak, speaking of my own family here. Winnipeg is a test market for major brands in North America because it is known that they are the toughest market to crack. They are the most value-conscious market. So if you go and buy a $4 donut in Winnipeg and expect to still have a political career, you do not understand Winnipeg. And all of these news stories were missing the most important class dynamic of the new hipster donut era. I don't even know from these stories if these were yeast donuts or cake-based donuts. Because cake donuts have been left out of the hipster donut craze. They're better than yeast donuts. And that's the issue that matters most to me. And I wanted to duly note it. Duly noted. Finally, Bob, uh, speaking of things trivial or perhaps not in your neck of the woods, Meghan Markle threatening a lawsuit over pictures taken of her in Canada. I mean... On the one hand, I'm loath to make such a meal out of this when it's all anyone's talking about. And it's like in many ways of limited interest to me. On the other hand, it is kind of like the biggest media story in Canada ever, not because Harry and Meghan are so famous, but because it is a story where media is a character like the media killed his mom. And now he wants to be in the sphere of the Canadian media because assumedly this is a media that is not going to treat them the same way. And we have the formerly royal couple, I don't know, trying to basically draw a line in the sand by threatening the media with a lawsuit for taking pictures of them in a public park, in a public park. And I know that a lot of Canadians are proud of this idea that we are a place that is not going to rip this couple to shreds. We don't have a disgusting paparazzi culture. They can be safe here. They can live their lives here. And I, I get that. But speaking to you as a fellow journalist and one who has been paying some attention to this, what do you make of this idea that it's somehow a violation of these very public people's lives to take a photograph of them in a public park? Yeah, I think it is rather audacious to to make that threat basically the first day that they're back together in the same place, uh, you know, just a couple of days after, you know, Harry delivers his remarks that were placed on Instagram about uh, why he was leaving, you know, the, the week after uh, Meghan Markle returns uh, to uh, Mill Fleur, the, the mansion that they're living in on Towner Bay in uh, North Saanich outside of Victoria. Certainly they're, they're entitled like everyone else is to go for a walk in the park, walk on the beach, and I think it's going to die down eventually. And, and maybe they should, uh, maybe they should take the, the, the Meng Wanzhou example, actually, because Meng Wanzhou and her security guards were quite menacing earlier on in this case. But, uh, starting last fall when she made her court appearances then, 
you know, she was walking out of her house uh, very leisurely with a smile on her face to get into her SUV with her bodyguards. And uh, they were allowing photographers to set up in front of the house, uh, in front of the mansion, on the sidewalk, uh, behind some stanchions to get their photos of her smiling. And same thing outside the, the law courts, as long as the reporters uh, you know, seemed to treat uh, the security guards and her with uh, respect, give them a little bit of space. They got the photos and the video that they wanted. Well, maybe Meghan and Harry could take that approach, uh, since they're now here in British Columbia. Why not, uh, you know, do a media interview here or there or do media availability somewhere? Just satisfy people just uh, to uh, drop their guard for a little bit and say, okay, that's us. And then uh, kind of set those parameters uh, unofficially or, or maybe even just, uh, you know, have some talks with some media organizations and say, we, we do our privacy. We do live here. We will talk to you every once in a while not being standoffish. I mean, this just doesn't need to be the way it's, it's happening. And uh, obviously there is some, some oddity here. I mean, this, this is something that doesn't happen every day that uh, members of a Royal family, anywhere in the Commonwealth or anywhere in the world just suddenly decide, no, we don't want to be part of the family. We don't want to do the family duties anymore. We want to live our own lives. There is some oddity to this. And I don't think that they themselves grasp it enough that the story that they're inside as much as they want to do this for their own good and for their own, uh, you know, well-being. And because, of course, there is the history of uh, Harry's mother, Diana, um, and, and her tragedy, I, you know, there is the understanding we should take from them, but they should also be taking the understanding that they're at the center of this major international story that just doesn't happen every day. And uh, I think that the Canadian media also has to keep a closer eye on this because uh, what really is going on here? Where where are their career ambitions? I mean, obviously, Vancouver has a very large uh, film and TV industry that Meghan Markle can uh, can work in. And where is uh, Harry going? Is he going to be doing uh, corporate uh, speaking events, for instance? Uh, is he going to be recruited to be a member of corporate boards? Is he going to become a goodwill ambassador? I mean, where, where is he going? Who, who's really driving this process? Because we've seen it roll out in a very methodical way. Everything seems to have been very, very well planned in this whole process. You know what? And actually speaking with some specificity, not like their address, but some specificity as to where they actually live, you have provided more information than any of the Canadian media reports that I've read about this who are doing something that I've never seen them do before. They're saying they're in a mansion on Vancouver Island. Like I've never heard reporting on that part of Canada that is that general. <laughs> and it seems to me that there's a deference there of, of an agreement, like they're here for privacy. We're not going to make it any more specific than that. They're on Vancouver Island. And the part that concerns me about this is that there is an assertion, not because Canadian law affords them more privacy, you can photograph them in a public park, but they're trying to basically create a new protocol with the Canadian media saying, you know, if the British media comes here and hides in the bushes, we're going to sue them. We can't win, but they don't know Canadian law. And we're, we're basically making it known that we're not going to tolerate any of this. And the Canadian media seems to be saying, OK, we're going to back off and we're just going to say that you're on Vancouver Island. And we are kind of creating these like special rules. There's a lot of sympathy for these people, because especially when it's with Prince Harry or the baby, they didn't have any choice. They were born in the public eye. But as you point out, are their ambitions entirely private? I have a lot of sympathy for people who were born into the public eye. I think it must be a miserable existence to be hounded by the press constantly. And there's this family connection and tragedy. But if they wanted to get off the grid, Vancouver Island, despite some of the articles I want to talk about in a second, 
is not really off the grid. I mean, this is a, a Western nation. We should have a free press and a developed press. And the idea that they can kind of assert as they're, you know, on the public dole for security costs and as I assume their financial enterprises in the future are going to be tied to their public identities. I'm sorry, but why should they get any treatment different than anybody else? You know, really my criticism is directed towards, I think, a Canadian media that is a little bit too chuffed at the idea that we are the civilized safe harbor in a world of uh, media frenzy. Like, really, I think we just have kind of a weak press. One interesting effect of all this attention on Vancouver Island is that the rapacious British press is sort of just like, they don't have anything to write, you know? Like, there's scarce pictures and details, and they're dealing with an audience that wants to know everything they can about Canada and about Vancouver Island, and it's resulted in some ridiculous pieces. Um, of course, uh, Richard Addis, the former editor of the Globe and Mail, a Brit, writing in the Daily Mail, welcome to Canada, arg, exclamation mark. <laughs> really trying to make this sound like, uh, what's the angle here? The angle is that it's a dangerous wilderness, psychopathic bears, <laughs> vampire flies, and gut-busting cuisine. These are just some of the perils Harry and Meghan will face in their new home. I was in Victoria last month. There were a lot of like old white beard guys with like, you know, baby blue sweaters tied around their shoulders in the nice climate. I didn't see any vampire flies or psychopathic bears. But according to Richard Addis, who apparently lived in Canada at some point that you wouldn't know it, in what might have been a satirical piece, the black flies in Canada turn the countryside into the lowest circle of hell. Blood streams out. If you were foolish enough to venture out for a walk without your protective head net, your family will run away screaming the moment they catch sight of you. That is because you will have no face left. So informing uh, the British. These Brits who like claim authority on Canada, there's a surprising number of British expats who have like edited the Globe and Mail or publishers of the Globe and Mail or editor-in-chief of the Toronto Star. And I think that we're like, it's, it's that same Canadian thing. We're chuffed that there are these people with these posh accents. You know, Elvis Costello said, like, if you're out of luck or out of work, we can send you to Johannesburg. And I guess if you're not talented enough for Johannesburg, they'll send you to Canada. Like, we don't get their best and brightest, you know, the Commonwealth, the, the Brits who end up here. Anyhow, that's a whole other thing. Elvis Costello was someone that actually, could actually teach them a thing or two about British Columbia. Uh, he's married to Diana Krall. And uh, I've seen him once uh, once every little while, either going to a cafe in West Vancouver or going grocery shopping. He's someone who's not scared of any any flies or black bears. I, li I live myself in a part of Vancouver where we sometimes do see black bears or sometimes even coyotes. Uh, but they're easily scared away. They're more scared of you than you are of them. So I think this is all a bit of uh, British British tabloid hype, but it's also been interesting how the British uh, tabloids, British press have made a lot of mistakes here and there. Uh, they, they can't quite use maps, it seems. Uh, you know, we've got modern maps. You can look on your smartphone and uh, you can search for places and make sure that the place names are correct. We do have some confusion here in the West Coast, but it's easily solved. I mean, Victoria is on Vancouver Island. Vancouver is not on Vancouver Island. Vancouver does have a district, uh, an area called Granville Island. That's where the public market is, major tourist attraction. But that's not an island. It's in False Creek, which is not a creek, truly not a creek. We do have a west side and a west end and a municipality called West Vancouver in Vancouver. These are, are would be great questions for a citizenship test, especially for some of these uh, British tabloid uh, reporters if they ever want to move here. Yeah, I mean, I would rather read the Elvis Costello take on this than uh, the one in the Daily Beast. Uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's unusual rustic island paradise. 
this writer seems to have really taken off with the whole idea of it being an island. Like, if, if you're thinking that this is some luxury vacation island, then I've got another thing uh, to tell you here, because the, the island, Vancouver Island, is largely uninhabited. And the favorite sport for locals is violent Pacific Ocean storm watching. Uh, she writes, the island is also where a number of severed feet in sneakers and leather <clears> shoes <throat> have washed up on shore in one of the area's most bizarre claims to fame. Uh, further reaching for something gritty and juicy about like, oh, they're not living where you think. You know, uh, well, they, they also have access to Vancouver where there are heroin addicts. So I, I've been having a great time reading these descriptions of Canada I don't know. I'm increasingly here for this media event, Bob. I'm increasingly, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm increasingly ready to read these stories because uh, somehow the way in which Canada is being interpreted and filtered and used is kind of entertaining. Bob, thank you for joining me for Canada Land Shortcuts today. Everyone can email me about it if they want to at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I do read everything that is sent to me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Bob, tell people where they can find you and your news website. Well, it's the thebreaker.news. I'm also at thebreaker.ca. Find me on social media, The Breaker News on Twitter. And I do a podcast as well every Sunday, The Breaker.news podcast. All right. Bob can be found at thebreaker.news, and it's well worth uh, your time. He, he breaks stuff. Our website is canadalandshow.com. There is a disturbing and fascinating new episode of Commons out right now on Gerald Regan, the former premier of Nova Scotia and multiple sex offender. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like our podcasts, if you appreciate the existence of Canada Land as a news organization and you want ad-free versions of our shows, you can get that. And we hope that you will at patreon.com slash Canada Land. Please support us. Mm-hmm.